Morning. Hey, Ralph, uh, there's another book uh, that uh, this is for the next stage. This is called Parenting Today's Adolescence, okay? The teenager. Actually, this is uh, one of the resources that we have in our uh, library uh, to check out. So I'll be reading from a, a story uh, from that book later on. So um, it's interesting that uh, uh, Judy and I have been married like what, how many years now? 30, 31? Yes, 31 years. And uh, still learning, still growing. And uh, so we're excited just to share some things. Uh, in all our years of our marriage, uh, we are very open to each other, growing in our relationship, and uh, almost we keep hardly any secrets at all, but there was one time that uh, Judy had this secret from me and that I had to talk to her about it, and this is uh, <clears throat> many years ago, earlier in our marriage, that um, uh, she, had, she had this little shoebox that was underneath the bed, and she says, if you love me, uh, you know, please do not touch that or look into that. I had bumped into it and I asked her about that. She said, no, no, you don't want to know the reason for that. And I said, okay, okay. So if you love me, just drop the issue. So Judy was out um, uh, shopping or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had, you know, curiosity uh, uh, as husband. So I kind of peeked under there and I looked in it and it was kind of interesting. Uh, there were about half a dozen eggs, and there were about uh, $3,000 in that. And I said, hmm, interesting. I can understand the money, you know, kind of saving for a rainy day or something, but what, what about the eggs? So anyway, Judy comes home, and feeling convicted, I said, uh, yeah, I kind of looked in the box, and she said, oh, no, just, and she says, okay, just, just forget about it. I said, okay, yeah, but I, I got to know what, you know, what is it with this, with this box here? And um, she says, you don't want to know. I says, okay, no, no, I got to know. Otherwise, I'm just going to be uh, with it. So finally, she says, okay, well, um, since we do, you know, lots of speaking and different things, she says, uh, every time that you, uh, your talk just flounders, you have a bad talk, bad message or so, I put an egg in, in the box. <laughs> so I said, okay, that's, that's not too bad. You know, there's like, what, half dozen, only six eggs, in, you know, all this time. And she says, yeah, and every time I get a dozen eggs, I sell it for a dollar. So, anyway. So, I check under our bed regularly to see if anything's under there. So, well, last Sunday, I talked about some things about, uh, that I was learning as, as being a dad, about fatherhood uh, and mentorship. Uh, and we like to share some things that we're learning about how to experience our marriage in a second culture. Uh, we have, uh, for the last 24 years, Judy and I uh, have experienced living in three, three foreign cultures, okay, three foreign cultures. Uh, when our daughters were um, real young, when they were three and five years old, we moved from the Chicago area, um, and then we moved to Japan, Tokyo, Japan. So we were in Japan for nine years. Then we moved to our second foreign culture, which was Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, we had not lived in the South before. Um, it was interesting. Actually, we uh, joined the, the church uh, where Robert Lewis uh, is one of the teaching pastors. He's the one that does uh, men's fraternity, authentic manhood, and things. And I remember the, the one Sunday that we were there, 
you know, coming from Japan, everything is small, miniaturized, small churches, not many Christians. You know, in the South, it's just large churches, large stores. So we were going through counter culture shock, you know, uh, moving there. And we're sitting in the church there, and our girls, they hated leaving Japan because that's where they grew up. And, you know, they just hated everything about America and stuff. And so we're, we're there in this church, and then evidently, uh, Robert Lewis, he had, he had played for uh, on the American football team at University of, uh, Razor, of Arkansas Razorbacks. So evidently, they, they won some kind of significant uh, game during the fall, and uh, Razorbacks are hog fans, they call them. They're, are, are, it's, it's basically kind of a cult there. They kind of, so anyway, what Robert does is they kind of celebrated and they kind of, everyone in the whole, you know, like 5,000 people in the congregation did the ooh, pig suey, and they started raising their hands like this. We've not seen that before. And Judy and I, we're looking at the kids, you know, we just got off the boat and we're looking and say, what kind of cult is this that we're in? So, so anyway, but we come to love that church, a uh, lot of great resources and impact, and it's, uh, our kids really uh, made an impact on their lives there too. And obviously, the third uh, uh, second culture is moving here uh, to, to China, and so we've been here now for three, uh, three and a half, um, three and a half years now. So, right, three and a half years. So, but with any new job or moving to a new location, you know the stress kind of mounts up. But when we found that when you move to a whole new culture, whether you're a single person, whether you're a family, uh, that stress level just multiplies many times over, and. We found out when that stress level comes up, it has a way of kind of surfacing things, deeper issues in your life where we don't see those cracks in our marriage or uh, the, the faults in our parenting, but when we move into another culture situation, all of a sudden those things kind of rise through the surface. So we're going to share some of the stories and, and some of the blunders that we've been learning, and we're, we're still learning in terms of that process. Um, so Judy's going to share is when we first started coming to Japan. People. We did have little children at one point in our lives. And when we moved to Tokyo, we brought with us our three-year-old daughter and our five-year-old daughter. And that was my first time to see Tokyo because I did not make an advanced trip like Jim did because with children little, you know, it just came when we came as a family. So we arrived at the airport after that long plane ride and we start, we get picked up by a new friend, and we said, how long will it be till we get to our guest, our host's house? He said, oh, soon. Well, about an hour after driving, the girls start getting hungry. And so we stopped at this restaurant, this rest stop, and it had something that almost looked like American hot dogs, but they were a lot more greasy than American hot dogs. So got the girls fed, got back in the car, asked him how much longer, he said, oh, soon. So we're driving along, I'm looking out the window with big eyes, trying to see what I can see, and all of a sudden, one of our girls loses it all over my skirt. She got sick. Yeah, she got sick. <laughs> so that wasn't very fun. And about a half an hour later, our second daughter starts feeling bad. By that time, we did get a bowl and got that collected, but it's starting to feel like a really long trip. Jim's in the front seat with this other man having this wonderful conversation, and I'm with the girls in the back, and just smelling worse and worse and worse. And there was no place to stop. And so by the time we got to our host family, I said, hi, I'm Judy, where's your shower? <laughs> because by that point, I was starting to feel pretty sick. So this trip, this mood that we prepared for for two years to get enough support to go to Japan, wasn't starting out real easy or smooth. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it was actually it was five hours from the airport down through downtown Tokyo to get to where we we're staying. So, so Judy's there balancing the two kids and, and our friend Raymond's looking back and said, what do I do? There's nothing to do. You're on these elevated highways. You just got to keep on, keep on going. I learned his definition of soon, of soon is a lot yes, different than yes, my yes, definition yes, of soon. soon. So, yeah. Well, as we started there, we realized that, you know, there's just the natural adjustments into a new culture, different things. Uh, we, um, one of the, the couple that we're staying with, uh, she knew Japanese really well, and so she was going to translate us to meet our new landlady, uh, Mrs. Fuji, and she was, so we were going to meet at a certain point at a, at a train, uh, subway station, train station, and so we were meeting there, and so we got there, Judy and I were waiting, and uh, Barb Whitehouse is her name. She says, well, I don't know where Mrs. Fuji is. Uh, maybe we miscommunicated. So she gets back onto the, onto the train, goes another couple of uh, subway stops uh, to look for her. So there we are, kind of standing there, you know, like second or third day in, in the country. It's kind of like uh, we feel really exposed. Then all of a sudden, um, we see this cute little old lady coming down the stairs, and she goes, Bado-san, Bado-san, Bado-san. You know, that's Mrs. Fuji. And we're looking at, where's Barb? Because we can't communicate with her. Um, and so she's coming down, and so as she comes, and, you know, we're doing the bowing and different things. Then, then she says, you know, she's kind of like taking her arm to, to go to look at the house. Um, this is a house that she owns. And, and then I said, no, I said, no, we need to wait wait for Barb White House. She says, hi, hi, house, 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 White House. He's old. No, no. I said, we need to wait for Barb White House. So, you know. And so it's, we, we call these kind of sticky situations. You just, you know. so we're right next to a little police box there. And I figure, okay, someone's got to speak English in there. So I go into the police box and I try to explain to them. And, you know, there's something that's interesting. You think you can communicate better if you raise your voice or speak louder or slower. And so the police there, they, they can't speak English. Then they get on the phone to someone who speaks English. And so we're talking on the phone. And then the guy thinking, okay, is, are you reporting a missing person? No, 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 she's not missing. We're just waiting for Barb Whitehouse. Anyway, so finally Barb comes there. But it's just those times that they add those stress, uh, you know, in, in families and different things. So... Um, Living in a second culture has been a good experience for our family. Um, I think it's a great uh, giving our kids a world perspective, a lot of things that they learn uh, with it. But as I mentioned, it has a way of surfacing uh, those issues that are deeper in our lives. And I'd like to take a look at three, three particular areas. One is the reality of compression, uh, the need for commitment, and the strength of community. I thought I'd do three CCs, you know, for um, a capital community uh, church here. But the reality of compression, you know, compression is, is you, when you squeeze things together, things tend to surface there. And I'd like to look at this one passage here that I think all of us are familiar with. In Genesis 12, 10 through 13, it says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was very severe. And it came about that when he came near to Egypt, that he said to Sarai, Sarai his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, and, but they will let you live. So please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me uh, because of you and that I may live on account of you. Now, this is kind of like, I was trying to think of a certain passage. So, you know, Abraham and Sarah and her family, they've moved from Ur and they traveled over to the land of Canaan. And then all of a sudden, they're going to go down to a side trip to Egypt. 
And so they're going to there. So they're kind of moving into a new culture and stress. And we're very familiar with that passage. I think most of us have seen that before. But I wonder if there's kind of a conversation going on between Abraham and Sarah. You think that Sarah, usually you think, okay, you know, we're going to Egypt. Okay, you're a very beautiful woman. So, you know, do this for me. Okay, just say that you're my sister and things like that. And I think Sarah's like, oh, yes, okay, I'll do that. But I think Sarah's kind of like, what do you mean I'm your sister? And especially if, you know, she kind of puts into the Egyptian harem or something. So Abraham's thinking mostly just about himself. He's not thinking about Sarah's well-being and stuff. So I think, you know, there's some stress there in their marriage and different things. And I imagine there could have been an argument there. I don't know. So on that particular passage there. She certainly, he, he certainly wasn't being her knight in shining armor. Knight in shining armor, no, not at all. So... So we were told before the first time we moved overseas that don't be surprised that you're going to be arguing more, having more conflict, uh, the stress levels. And so we had a little benefit of a kind of a, a heads up in terms of the different things going on there. Um, and it almost becomes like a domino effect for our family. I remember one time um, in, living in Japan there, you know, I was angry about something and then, you know, I was kind of yelling at Judy and then Judy kind of yells at the kids, and then the kids were yelling at, and they end up kicking the cat. You know, it's just a domino effect right on down there. So just kind of like nothing like modeling good fatherhood and, and uh, you know, parenting at this like that. So, but sometimes those higher stress levels can surface even some of the deepest issues in my life. Uh, about, about a third year living into Japan there, uh, I had an outburst with our kids. I remember the first time that happened, uh, we were in our little... We're living in a Japanese house here in a little living room. And it might have been something one of the kids did or something, but I just kind of lost it. And what I did is I grabbed, uh, I think, our oldest daughter, and I was yelling at her, and I threw her, you know, physically onto the couch there. And, I mean, that scared her. You know, that scared me to say, like, where did that come from? You know, where did that anger at that level where it actually got physical, you know, actually abuse in a sense, uh, at our daughter, and it scared Judy too. And uh, I realized that, you know, th maybe there's some issues of anger deep inside of me I didn't realize before, but that stress level was bringing those thumbs up um, even higher. Well, this happened, um, when this happened, this was not a very happy situation in our family, as you can imagine. I felt very angry at Jim. I did not like him very much in those moments at all. I felt that the children who were guilty were getting off the hook for the attitudes and actions they had done. Uh, this was not the man I married. He was not an angry man. Um, but I felt very alone and isolated as a missionary wife in Japan whose family was messing up very badly, all of us overseas. And we were in crisis, and I had a choice to make. Uh, in my struggle, finally the Lord brought some truths to my mind to remind me. He said, you married that man for better or for worse, and you have a commitment to him. But I also felt a commitment to the kids to protect them, and that's an awful tug of war for a wife to be in. But God also reminded me that you're called, Judy, to be his helpmate. And it's obvious he needs some help right now. There's, we need to find, as a family, some better ways to parent so that we won't get to that stress level. Up to that time also, God had been showing me that I wasn't dealing with parenting right either. I was being too soft of a parent. I wasn't very biblical. I didn't know what to do, so I just 
did whatever came natural. I was indecisive. We were working separately, and we were not working together as a team. So in my weakness and in his, I started flooding myself with parenting materials. I started reading every book in the market that I could find and try to find the help that we needed because we obviously weren't doing things right. Um, thankfully, the Lord did lead me to some books that comforted my heart, uh, relief for hurting parents. I, I needed to know that I'm not the only one that's hurting out there. Also, some other material that had more of a team approach in parenting. And so Jim and I had to sit down and get on the same page and decide a proactive plan of how we were going to raise these kids in a way that would honor God in a better way. The first thing we had to do after we got on the same page was sit down with our girls and ask their forgiveness and said, we have not been modeling godly parenting. We have messed up really wrong and we ask your forgiveness. And we're going to start over. And these are some new standards that we're going to enforce. And we ask your patience with us because we're still learning. So um, thankfully, that was a real good start for us. Jim repented. Uh, we both started depending on God more and each other in our parenting instead of letting the kids divide us. Um, it also came apart in my marriage where I had a new appreciation for the word of what it means to be a helpmate. That uh, we all have our weaknesses. And that was just one. Jim doesn't have too many weaknesses, but at that moment, it, you know, the sin was coming out. So um, it was good to have a plan that we could work on together and trust God together. Well, then in a few years later, one of my weaknesses started coming out. And the, and the question was, well, how would Jim respond? Because it was going to uh, cost him a big amount of change in his job and in his ministry. Uh, we, like he said, we lived in Japan nine years. And the first year, we had those normal cultural stresses. You cry, you feel frustrated. Why did they do things this way? But after living in a place a while, you start to get in a rhythm. You start to understand things. But in my eighth year in Japan, all of a sudden, something hap started happening to me. Um, I started feeling like a robot. I would just go through the days emotionless. I would do what I needed to do to get the kids ready. I would take Jason to the park. I would speak my baby talk English. They would speak. Well, I would speak my baby talk Japanese, they would speak their baby talk English, and very surface level relationships. Well, uh, a part of what I was feeling so bad about is I personally felt condemned in my parenting as well. I felt like everybody else was doing this parenting job great. Uh, we had the oldest kids on our team, so we were hitting everything first, but it seemed like everybody else had compliant children that were really easy and respectful and polite, and we had active, verbal, opinionated kids. Um, and so I felt like even God was upset with me because I'm a Christian, I should know better. If I wasn't a Christian, you wouldn't know anybody, but Judy, you're a Christian, you should know better. You should be doing what all those things you studied, and I crammed myself <laughs> with two years worth of college degree with all those books I read. So I had lots of rules in my head, do this, do this, do this, do this. And I was a perfectionist, and I couldn't do it perfectly. So what started happening is um, we went back to the US for a conference. And I met with some people in our company, uh, an older lady especially, who was a counselor. And the whole hour I met with her, I cried. All that I'd stuffed in and hadn't shared with anybody else came out that day in Colorado. So she was very concerned for me, and she gave me a depression test. 
The depression test, I was, I'd never been depressed before. I didn't know what depression was, except for a bad day here and there. But the depression test showed that I was either coming into a depression or going out of one. And she was very concerned with for me. So she asked, she wanted to meet with Jim. And she told Jim that I was in a very fragile state and she was very concerned about us staying in Japan for two more years. And that she says, I think it's an environmental depression, Judy. And if you get out of Japan, you'll be all right. Because a lot of my gifts were in the speaking area and I love to teach the word. And I was on a baby talk level for eight years. So um, it was a question of, oh no, Jim loves his job. He loves what he's doing. How is he gonna respond to this weakness in his wife? that says she's in trouble, so. Yeah, see, language school in Japan, I went through language school in terms of speak Japanese, but language school was $1,000 a month, and uh, we just did not have that in terms of our, our budget and stuff. So Judy, she, she survived well, but uh, that was one of the things. So at this point, we had made the decision to leave Japan, but there, was a, there were several factors that were coming into play. Uh, but then as we realized that, uh, as Judy was sharing these specific needs here, okay, instead of returning to Japan for two more years, we, we decided on one more year. And uh, that was a, a no-brainer. I said, you know, we, we need to do that. In fact, we, we need to even come back right now if we need to. But we, we figured that the one year would be a good time for closure and developing at that point. So, and so that idea, that, that commitment in the relationship of just trying to balance out, you know, what our jobs or responsibilities are. Uh, because, you know, we'll have jobs come and go and different things, but, you know, I only have one wife. I only have one family. And I want to make sure um, that, you know, making a priority to take that. The, the second point is, you know, we're, we're compressed and it surface things, and then also the need for commitment, as Judy was talking about. Uh, there's times in our relationship where we're not so lovable. Uh, as Judy was mentioned, and uh, but we say no, I'm sticking with this commitment, and then even sometimes following somewhere, you know, different assignments. It, it can be really difficult moving a family here and there. And I know many of you uh, are doing that because you don't have so much of a choice. Your companies are doing that as well uh, with that. So, but you know, sticking together in terms of that commitment. Ecclesiastes uh, is one of our favorite passages. Four verses nine through twelve says, two are better." than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, two lie down together where they can keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? I think that verse is specifically for the Beijing winters, you know, in order to kind of survive together. Um, but that idea of commitment that we need each other. There's times when I'm down and then Judy kind of picks me up. And then, you know, there's days, you know, Junie has a China day, and then I kind of pick her up. And uh, rarely we're both time, but we're both down, but we need each other. Uh, if you're not married, it's just having good, as a single, just good relationships with other brothers and sisters, and just uh, having that, uh, you know, we need each other in terms of that community. So. And I am very grateful, and I'm very convinced that if we had not left Japan when we did, for my emotional health sake, that we'd not be in China now. I got to have 13 years back in the U.S. and heal and grow, and I'm very grateful that my husband made me a priority and made a commitment in our marriage over what we were doing. You know, it's interesting, when the pressure's on, the tendency, and it could be a roommate situation, but especially in a marriage, the tendency is to kind of go at each other, you know, and you know, it's like that domino effect that mentioned each other. That the people that are closest to us, we have tendency to hurt more, 
And even though they may not be the cause or the reason, but they're the closest ones that have, end up with having collateral damage. Um, you know, it's almost like the story where they talk about the difference between a wild donkeys and wild horses. Wild donkeys um, uh, actually is when they are attacked by wolves in, in the wilderness. What the donkeys will do is they will face out towards the wolves and they kind of kick each other. Where horses, what they do is they face in, they keep the young foals in there, and they kick out towards where the wolves are. So, you know, that helped me to realize, okay, when the pressure's on things, okay, we're together here. We're, we're, we're a team. Uh, you know, in fact, you know, you know, we're not, you know, you're not the enemy. In fact, we do this at our conferences, and I like to do this right here. If you're married, just turn to your spouse right now, look at you, and say, my spouse is not my enemy. Go ahead and say that. My spouse is not my enemy. enemy, Okay, just remind that. Okay, they're not the enemy. There are other spiritual forces out there. I mean, there's cultural, there's different things, uh, but there's spiritual forces out there. Um, And sometimes conflicts affect us, even though it's not intentional. Sometimes we we learn is you're doing something for yourself. It may be a habit or certain things, but the way you do your habit has impact the other person, and they take it the wrong way. Uh, Japan also has very cold winters like Beijing, and so we were smart. We bought an electric blanket, and we figured, you know, it kind of, it, uh, see, we don't have any heating in the house except a little kerosene heater, and so we have these little kerosene heaters, but we turn them off at night because of, uh, they're not safe to keep running. So in the morning in our bedroom, you can see your breath. It's about maybe five degrees centigrade when you kind of wake up in the morning. So electric blanket would kind of help. Well, we bought this electric blanket, brought it from America, and come to find out it doesn't even work properly. I said, oh, okay, we can't even send it back and stuff. Until one day when we were pulling the covers off, we noticed there was a label that said this side face down. <laughs> see, it had two controls. But see, I had Judy's control and she had my control. I'm a person, I'm hot even in the wintertime, so I'm turning mine down, right? but I'm turning her side down. So she's freezing on her side of the electric blanket, so what does she do? She turns hers up, which is my side. Now I'm getting hotter and hotter, so I'm turning mine down. You know, so finally we kind of figure out, okay, now we kind of realize you know, our mistake there. And sometimes you know, in our relationships, you know, we're just doing something for ourselves, but we end up impacting the other person that way. Satan's plan is also to isolate us, uh, to keep us, he wants to isolate us from our relationship with God, he wants to isolate us in marriage and our relationships with other uh, brothers and sisters. In fact, he wants us to, to feel like you are the only one that has this problem. And sometimes we kind of fall into that lie. But when we realize, no, no, we aren't the only one. That's why we need, we need each other. And that's why we need a community of believers. The third point is the strength of community. Compression, the reality, the commitment, and we need the strength of community. We need the community of each other's. Um, the uh, verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 4 is, if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So there's strength in numbers, in helping each other. And that's one of the things I really appreciate, appreciate about uh, Capital Community here is just the community that we have. And all of us are experiencing that. And especially I encourage you about small groups to be involved uh, you know, from the men's group, the women's times, uh, and other, other relationships, because it, it's real easy to kind of be on our own. And if we end up on our own, we're going to end up 
um, you know, just isolated. isolated. So, you want to talk about the older men mentor yeah, center? Yeah, about the teenage group. Uh, the parenting teenagers group. Oh yeah, yeah. This was uh, we the community group that one of the ones we got in Japan. I think Judy had mentioned to one of our toughest times in our marriage was uh, when our girls were moving into the teenage years. In fact, uh, Mark Twain has an interesting point. He says that, uh, he wrote in his book, uh, he said that you know, teenagers, when you had to work with teenagers, is you, is you put them in those, these big wooden barrels and then you kind of feed them through a little hole. And, and when they turn 16, you kind of plug up the hole. So anyway, <laughs> uh, but teenagers are, are kind of a challenge with that. And so uh, we got into a community group at our, our church. It was just like this, uh, Capital Community. It was uh, called uh, KBF, Kurume Bible Fellowship, is what it was called in Japan. Uh, people from all different cultures and stuff uh, that were there. And so we had a, a, a parenting group. All the parents were in that group uh, were teenagers. And so we felt like it was almost like a, an alcohol anonymous group. We kind of walked in there and said, hi, my name is Jim and Judy, and we're parents of teenagers. Oh, hi, Jim and Judy, you know, because we kind of commiserate, you know, with each other. But we had great community there, and it helped us to realize, hey, we are not the only ones dealing with these issues. And so as we kind of looked into the Word, uh, you know, the leader was taking us through some material that we realized, okay, we're not alone in this. And that's where we need each other. We're, we're not designed to be uh, uh, by ourselves. Um, many of you know that two years ago, the school IAB struggled a lot. In fact, there was question whether even it was going to finish the school year. And many of us were attending this church as parents and teachers and administrators, as well as the students. On Sunday morning, we'd come and see each other and we'd cry on each other's shoulder and we'd pray and we'd hug and we just like were trusting God together in this. We didn't know how it was happening. But what really touched me was there was people in this body, and you know who you are, that you came alongside to pray with us, to in some cases financially support the teachers, to help on a legal basis, to be there as a body of Christ for us, to say, hey, you're not alone. Because you're my brother and sister, we're going through this with you. And that just meant a lot. Because those of us who were in it, we had no choice. We had to be in it. The people that weren't in it, but chose to be in it with us voluntarily, that really was a beautiful expression of body life and caring for each other as a body of Christ. And we'll remember that for a long time. Um, also, I really encourage all of us to seek out mentors, to seek out older mentors or peer mentors. I'm very grateful for that lady, Sandra Auer, who came into my life for only about six months of time. I was only physically with her for maybe a week or two one summer, and then we continued to email for six months. But I'm so grateful for Sandra because Sandra had raised kids overseas, actually three boys. And she shared stories with me. She said, Judy, you think your stuff's bad? My son got kicked out of a Christian school overseas. <laughs> so she could empathize with the struggles I'm going through. And she could challenge me when I was believing lies. And she said, Judy, it's not that bad what you're going through. She helped balance me. She challenged me. She kept me in check. She helped me come out of that depression so that my last year in Japan was a really good year. It was a joyful year. We had good closure. We could say goodbye. Our kids had a chance to say goodbye. So I'm very grateful for this older woman's uh, story in my life. And so I found that that's very, very biblical in Titus 2, that older women, we do have a role, and that is to encourage the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. 
And so in the theme we're encouraging today about the need for each other, the need for community, I so respect women who come up to me or someone else and say, hey, can I have a minute of your time? Can we just talk about something I'm a little stuck at? And so I really respect that and I would encourage you to do that. I know when I was a young mom, I looked for some mentors and one woman told me no and that really hurt me. Um, it wasn't so much, you know, people don't feel so qualified. But sometimes we just need to be there, another person, a listening ear. So if one person says no, ask somebody else. But just really encourage us to, to seek out somebody else who's in the word and who loves the word and could encourage you in maybe some of those areas. I'd like to close with a story. Uh, this is a book, um, Dennis Rainey, uh, P Parenting Today's uh, Adolescence Here. So this is a story about uh, three individuals who pushed their boat away at a river's edge on a hot July Saturday in 1960. One of the passengers was a 17-year-old boy named Roger. This was an exciting outing for him. Roger's dad was a carpenter who moved his family frequently, frequently while following construction work. Uh, without permanent roots, Roger was learning to appreciate special opportunities like this, when a, like a boat ride that came along. Having only lived a few uh, months in this area uh, from another new town, uh, Roger uh, didn't know much about the place or the river. He had just uh, was glad uh, to be away from his family's trailer house on a blistering summer day. Well, the 12-foot aluminum boat belonged to Jim, who was his dad's foreman at a construction job. Jim had stopped by and asked the whole family to go for the boat ride, but Roger's mom and dad had things to do, so only Roger and his 17-year-old sister uh, Deanne uh, had, uh, had gone with Jim. Remember to wear your life jacket, Roger's dad told him as they left. Roger was just learning how to swim. The air was cooler on the river, but the life jacket made Roger sweat. So he asked Jim if he could take it off. There seemed to be little danger, so Jim shook his, uh, Jim, but Jim shook his head and he said no. The boat, powered by a small uh, outboard motor, made its way slowly downstream. Roger became bored as he, the craft went under a bridge, and then he turned and he asked Jim if he could steer. Jim sh uh, shook his head again and said, no, not now. The river's becoming a little bit more turbulent. Roger looked ahead over the boat's prow, and in the distance, he noticed an odd mist kind of rising from the river. He said, what is that? He wondered. Before he could ask, he saw a small island in the river swarming with a bunch of birds. This held his attention until the boat began to rock, and it was met by much larger waves. The boat's motor which has been going on faithfully, all of a sudden began to whine, and as Roger began to see why, Jim kind of killed the motor, and he tipped up the engine, and the propeller, the housing, uh, had hit some rocks, and he sheared off the pin, so the motor was uh, useless at this point. As Jim grabbed for the oars, he yelled for Deanne to put on her life jacket. Jim rode, rode furiously, and Roger saw fear in his eyes. Deanne screamed, well, what's the matter? Well, Jim didn't answer. Roger looked ahead. The river's current now pulled the boat swiftly into the mist. Water churned and crashed around them. It had, it, it, a huge wave struck the side of the boat, and the boat turned nearly on its side, but then slipped upright through the trough. Roger gripped the sides of the boat and says, I don't want to go swimming, he cried. Don't be scared, said Jim. I'll hold you. Another wave smashed uh, the boat, and this time it overturned, dumping everyone overboard. Jim grabbed Roger while Deanne tried to hang on to the boat, to the, uh, the capsized boat. Roger clung to Jim, but, but in seconds, the, the vicious water turn had ripped them apart. Roger slammed into a rock and then swirled away into the wet chaos. Now he was alone, speeding through the rapids of the Niagara River, just a hundred yards away from the deadly Harshu Falls. 
Deanne lost her grip on the boat. She bobbed in the wild surf. She saw a man standing ahead on the island. He was waving and yelling at her, begging her to swim with all her might. She kicked uh, and paddled weakly toward him. Kick harder, the man screamed. Deanne did, and just as she was about to be swept away, she reached up and caught his thumb and two fingers. With one leg wrapped around the aluminum guardrail, the other teetering over a small rock, uh, the man held her. But the force of the water rolling over into the abyss was just 15 feet away. It was too strong for him to yank her to safely. The two held on amidst the drenching mist and the thunder of the mighty Niagara Falls. Help, help, the man screamed. Another tourist came running. He leaped over the rail and, and swaying on the slippery bank, and he pulled both Deanne and rescued her safely. My brother, what's happened to my brother, she yelled. The second man who had seen Roger at a, uh, the mangled aluminum boat pass over the falls. You can only say, well, pray for him. So Deanne dropped to her knees, you know, tears screaming down her face. Well, on that horrifying afternoon before the Washer Falls, about 200 feet back, where the falls empty into a gorge, sat the boat filled with tourists who were snapping pictures and enjoying the cool spray. The captain was about, uh, and the back of the boat was called the Maid of the Mist, when a passenger yelled, man overboard. About 50 feet away in the whirling current was a child wearing a red life jacket. The, the, the uh, captain circled the boat. The line attached to the preserver hurled toward the boy. The first time it fell short, the second time, Roger grabbed a hold, and he was hauled safely aboard. So he says, my sister, my sister, you know, where is she? Well, she survived, and Roger survived. But the guy driving the boat, the adult, he didn't survive. You know, as I thought about that story, is sometimes, you know, life gets faster and faster, and the waves come at us. But in this story, they needed other people to help them, to rescue them. And it doesn't mean that we need rescue in a sense, but it's kind of like we need other people. We need community, uh, each other. And so it's kind of like what we're saying here is, you know, the pressure will build. There's seasons of life. You know, keep that commitment strong. Do things to encourage that commitment. And also, how can we build that strong community? Because we need each other. So.